Welcome to part two of our college cast on stigma and discrimination in mental health. This week we continue our interview with Claire O'Reilly. Recognising that health professionals can be one of the most stigmatising groups and mm. we've discussed a, a little bit around that. How prevalent is it do you think? How prevalent is poor attitudes from health professionals? Yeah. Look it's really hard to know. I think um, you know, as I said, the, the literature is a little bit mixed ar around this topic um, and there's not kind of large scale evidence to say that this is a real big problem in a particular health professional or in a particular area or country. Um, what, I, what we do know is that generally when there's been um, global studies of people's, you know, individuals' experiences of stigma and discrimination is that it doesn't tend to uh, vary much by country. So even in low and middle income countries, high income countries, there's not a huge amount of variation of people's experiences. So I think that kind of highlights it probably happens a bit everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and it can happen in all illnesses too. So I think people's experience of stigma and discrimination probably varies depending on the illness. So some of those particular kind of um, aspects of when it's severe and persistent mental illness might be a bit different as I've mentioned in that they might not be noticing it or they might have, um, it becomes quite an isolating illness and perhaps they don't put themselves into situations where they might be uh, stigmatised as much perhaps um, because of the lack of self-esteem and some of those aspects to it. Um, but it's hard to kind of say exactly how common it, it, how common occurrence it is. Okay. Um, yeah, because we don't have data to exactly say. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Do yeah. you have any data around whether this stigma or discrimination is experienced more from a certain health professional over others? Um, Look, not, not particularly. I found it interesting in the, in the um, work that we've done here in Sydney, a lot of the um, complaints from either case managers or from the, from the people, individuals themselves were around particular settings. So, you know, going to emergency department or going to a GP practice um, with some of the concerns. Um, but interestingly, I didn't, in our data, we didn't necessarily find any reports, good or bad, about pharmacists. Um, and I reflected on that I think that um, that's possibly even just because of a missed opportunity for community pharmacists in, in Australia here in that people in the services that we were talking to, um, they have very proactive kind of case managers, as I mentioned, and, and those case managers often pick up their medication and deliver them to the patient and they're living in a community setting so they're not seeing hospital um, pharmacists either. Um, so they're not coming into contact with pharmacists all, all that so much. It's not a direct relationship. So yeah, think. so in that part, we, which I find um, is a bit of a, a gap really in that they're not getting um, hopefully input from pharmacists to try and improve their medication, you know, related problems, because um, there's certainly many of those. Um, so, so that's interesting, uh, you know, in our data that pharmacists didn't come up as particularly poor. But in other, when we look at other studies around pharmacists and people's experiences of whether they're stigmatising or not, um, look, some of the data is, is, 
as being quite positive in that people find, um, you know, can think of community pharmacy as a, as a safe space if they feel like their privacy and their confidentiality is being, uh, you know, addressed. So as we see more and more, you know, consultation, consultation rooms, rooms and pharmacists being more aware of those type of issues in practice, I think mm. we'll see that. Um, and I also have noticed, I think, that there's been a shift in a bit more of a recognition from consumers that uh, they can talk to pharmacists about mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. I think even five or ten years ago, particularly in the community pharmacy kind of space with, you know, you'd talk to pe people about um, pharmacists' role in mental health and they'd be like, pharmacists and mental health, what, have they, what can they do in that, in that area? Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's been much more of a recognition that they are somebody that people can go and talk to. Good, good, and they yeah. have the trust in them to be able yeah. to, to go and discuss any of their yeah. um, issues or concerns. Fantastic. So, so I think that um, we do need to make sure we support pharmacists in that in that way. And we, I've been doing some research with some colleagues in Canada about um, pharmacists, community pharmacists' experiences of people uh, at risk of suicide. So. Um, because we're, because people feel like they can talk to their pharmacist and they're uh, accessible and not, you know, open long hours, all those type of things, and this has certainly happened to me and what sparked my interest in this area a long time ago, is um, coming in contact with someone who might actually be uh, having suicidal thoughts um, in the in the pharmacy setting, and and we and we asked pharmacists about their experiences about that, and it does and while I can't say how common it is because a, you know it was only a small scale study but it was quite interesting to see um, pharmacists reflect on that that does seem to be happening quite a bit um, and that they are not always that that confident in being able to um, deal with those kind of situations when it happens in practice so it's important that I think we support pharmacists um, better to be able to handle those type of situations mm, definitely yeah, definitely. And what do you think the impact is on patients mm. when they are coming across this type of discrimination from their health professionals yeah. and they don't have a case manager to be yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it can be, look, really varied, but there is some um, interesting research and in a, a meta-analyses um, a few years ago from some people, colleagues in the UK that showed that um, stigma can have a large impact on help seeking. So that's probably a big, um, big aspect I would say in that, and that can be not just because they fear the stigma from the health professional, that can also be um, internalised stigma that they may not want to admit, for example, that they might have a mental illness even to themselves, um, or that they might think that by going to seek help, seek help from a health professional, their family or friends might find out about uh, a mental illness or their workplace. Or, so it, it can be quite complex. It's not just that they're worried about how the health professional will treat them. Mm. It can be more broadly about, about all of those things. Um, but we also tend to find as well that, um, well, the research seems to show that it does impact on people's um, self-esteem. Um, it can cause a lot of social isolation. So the other big areas of, of stigma, as well as accessing healthcare that we've found in our research is around uh, stigma and discrimination from family and friends. Mm. So uh, particularly ongoing with a severe and persistent mental illness, friends often drop off. They don't um, contact people anymore. Um, family even often um, lose contact. Um, maybe they don't, they don't want to um, 
other people to know perhaps that they have a family member with that illness or they don't maybe they don't also have a good understanding um, about the illness and what it really means. So, you know, there's a lot of impacts on someone's life related to that stigma and discrimination. So they might not have good friends and social network and supports, um, can even impact on people being, uh, you know, being worried about applying for a job and will people find out about that? Um, so you can see it can, it can kind of uh, affect people's lives in, in many different ways. Well, their entire lives for yeah, yeah, right. Because if they've got a, a limited um, social network, yeah, then yeah. you know when you're when you're looking for support from friends yeah. and family, and you don't have it. Then yeah, that's got to have quite long-lasting consequences. Let alone, you know, having some fear of going to your health professional because you think that's they might perceive you in the same way. Yeah, um, that's so right. the, the isolation that could result from that would be quite yeah. disastrous for a lot of people, I'd imagine. Yeah, and I think, you know, as a society, I think we are generally talking about mental health problems much more, and I think more and more people probably do feel comfortable to, you know, talk about if they're experienced an anxiety or a, a depressive kind of illness, but I still don't think we're quite there for no. people feeling comfortable to talk about if they have bipolar or if they have schizophrenia. Mm. I don't think we're quite at that same same point. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so I guess would true. that be the the need for more support for family and friends to understand you know that particular yeah. person's condition? Yeah, so I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Close that gap a little bit. Yeah. And also even just more generally, I think the general public, I think making sure that when we are trying to, you know, raise awareness and talk about mental health concerns, we also talk about those you know, the lower prevalent kind of disorders, but those lower prevalent disorders are much more high burden. And I think yes. we need to kind of raise awareness more generally in the community about, you know, what, and, and some of the aspects I think that link to that are a lot of the reports around stigma discrimination from some of the people we've spoken to is around the fact that if they do have an ongoing uh, schizophrenia, for example, they might, their appearance might be a bit different or they might behave in some odd ways and, mm. and, and people don't necessarily know how to take that or how to mm. react or behave around that type of behaviour or appearance. Um, and, and therefore, people tend to avoid uh, and not have, you know, contact or, or things like that. So, yeah, so it, it is quite, um, quite complex in that particular population group, I think. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Mm. And talking about your know, family and friends, mm. from your research, what have those families and friends seen and heard when health professionals have been talking to mm. this person that has a severe mental illness? Um, so the family families that we interviewed, uh, they often saw bad experiences in the past in relation to mental health care. So often, you know, their loved ones might have had a mental illness for 10, 20, 30 years in the, in the groups that we were talking to. Um, and so in the past, often, you know, experiences in a mental health hospital or things like that weren't great, but they have certainly, they commented, and this is quite, you know, pretty common across the people we spoke to, that over time they've seen the mental health care get a lot better. Um, and they've had a lot more positive experiences Good. around the way that they've seen healthcare professionals um, treat their loved ones. Um, but 
because of the people that we spoke to had that case manager kind of involvement, they often didn't see the day to day. So they, you know, their loved one doesn't live with them um, and, and, you know, they might be in supported accommodation and they might visit, you know, once a week or phone call or that type of thing. So we noticed that their reports around uh, accessing physical health care, they didn't have as much to comment on. One or two of the family members acknowledged that, oh, uh, you know, if they didn't have such and such, so they named, you know, their, their care or their case manager, it would be a whole different story. So they mm. often did reflect on the fact that because of that extra care, um, they had a very different experience than probably what they would have got otherwise. Interesting. Um, yeah, but they, the family members certainly reflected on you know, how they'd seen them lose friends and that even within their own family. So it's funny because it's it's a tricky issue with family because family came up often as one of the most supporting groups, but at the same mm -hmm. time, they're often one of the, can be one of the most stigmatising groups for, for the same population. So it can be very complex. Um, you know, people felt like they were, they were often left out of important family decisions. They might not have been invited to that family wedding like the rest mm -hmm. of the family were. Um, or they just don't get visited, you know, their, their siblings don't contact them wow. much anymore. Yeah, so it's, it's a tricky one, the, the family environment, I think. Mm, indeed. Mm. And why do you think this is happening? So going back to mm. health professionals and the stigma and discrimination that, pay, that these um, people with severe mental health health illnesses are experiencing. Mm. Health professionals should be people that you go to openly if you have any kind of medical condition for your medication, yeah. for advice. So so what's going on? Why is this happening? Why is it happening? Yeah. Oh, I wish I had the, the complete answer to that. Um, <laughs> look, look, I think a few things to, to, to say are that I think generally it is getting better. So, you know, as I mentioned, family members look report on you know what it was like 20 30 years ago for for their loved ones and you know the the treatment of people with a severe mental illness back then was really poor um, and I think it is getting a lot better and I think and we've seen um, that uh, people get treated much more in the community so they're not in a hospital environment for a long term like like they used to be in the past so we're seeing that shift they live you know in the community with everyone else um, but perhaps we haven't, you know, always supported health professionals well with that change in kind of recognising perhaps how they need to support people um, and, and kind of training health professionals, you know, from the beginning to make sure that they are having the right kind of attitudes around these type of things when they go out into practice. But it, look, it's tricky. Um, you know, health professionals work often in difficult circumstances where they're busy and they're they're dealing with a lot of different things at once. Um, and sometimes, you know, for people with more complex mental health needs, um, they can maybe may tricky patients to manage sometimes. So mm -hmm. it, it can be quite complex. But I certainly think in the community setting, I think uh, pharmacists and GPs need to, uh, you know be well integrated with their local community mental health services. And I'm not sure how that works in, in New Zealand, but certainly um, in Australia that hasn't always happened. I think we're seeing um, improvements on in that area with what we call our primary health networks. Um, and they are more proactively, I think, trying to 
work with local healthcare professionals in the mental health area. It kind of seems to be a, um, a particular area of interest for a lot of our primary health networks uh, at mm -hmm. the moment. Do you think there's a, a group of health professionals who aren't aware of their own bias, potentially? Yeah, look, I do. And that kind of, um, that comes back to that idea I mentioned early on about that diagnostic overshadowing. So that kind mm -hmm. of idea that, you know, you might be a, a physician in a busy emergency department and you see someone come in and even though it's a physical health issue related to their diabetes or, or something, you go, oh, mental health patient, let's send them to mental health um, mm -hmm. and they can take care of it. Um, and that might be maybe they think it's the easier option. Um, you know, maybe they'll understand their mental health issues so that way they could treat them better. Um, but then often their physical health needs don't don't get looked at. Um, you know, there is evidence around people who would present to the ED with cardiac issues or things like that, and they get, you know, less follow up, um, less investigation, and often end up with poorer poorer outcomes than people without a mental illness. So we do need to. Yeah, so I think some of those aspects are um, tricky to shift. I think it's um, multifactorial. So I think, you know, in those type of settings, um, we need to have the right kind of staff mix, the right support. They're often probably, you know, under the pump to get people seen and get them either discharged or to award or all of these type of things. So, um, yeah, I don't think I have an easy answer to that, but hopefully we'll continue to see it get better over time. Indeed. How important is it for health professionals to address this and reflect on their own behaviours and their own thoughts? Yeah, look, I think that that kind of is really important, I think, for each individual practitioner to reflect on um, reflect on their own way of maybe it's a maybe you can, we can get, you know, health professionals to reflect on a particular instance that they've maybe dealt with someone with a mental illness and try and think about that experience from that individual's perspective, you know, about how they may have thought that they were treated. Um, did you did you handle it the best way that you could? Um, were your own beliefs or judgments kind of clouding the way that you treated um, that person? Um, I think that's really important for all of us to, to reflect on and think, can we, can we do that better next time? And I think that's why um, if we can get uh, more individuals with their own lived experience of mental illness to, to share how they have been treated and, and share examples of perhaps where they have been discriminated against, I think those type of stories can be quite powerful to help people go, oh, I hadn't, maybe it's just I hadn't thought about how that mm -hmm. might actually have um, uh, being perceived by somebody and, and things like that. So I think certainly if we can get people to reflect on their own practice um, and how they might, you know, might just do something a little bit differently next time. Mm, definitely. Mm. And finally, what is the most important takeaway message for those listening today? Um, so I think part of it is, is just what we talked about around reflecting on your own, own beliefs. But I think also, you know, if you have staff in your, in your pharmacy, um, make sure that everyone kind of has perhaps maybe make it a topic for people to discuss at staff meetings or things like that. And that you should, um, you know, talk to people with a mental illness in your pharmacy setting. Don't be afraid to have a conversation with them, to offer support. Um, often I think pharmacists might think that's going to be a, 
a difficult conversation or that they won't be able to offer the right support or they'll get stuck talking to that person and hear their whole life story for, mm -hmm. for hours at a time. And, and that often won't be the case. But I think, you know, with some regular um, support, then they'll be a very regular, you know, patient in your pharmacy as well. Um, and they will really, they really value um, your support and care because I think I like pharmacists to think that they can have a really big impact on, on somebody's life. As we talked about this significant life ex expectancy gap for people mm. with a mental illness, so much of that is preventable things you know, making sure that we get people screened for illnesses, we refer them on, that they, um, we help them quit smoking, uh, that we help them to lose weight and be adherent to their medication and not end up back in hospital. And, you know, there's so many different ways that I think we can support people and actually make quite a difference. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your time today, Claire. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. CollegeCast is brought to you by Sharina Vassan from the College Education and Training Business Unit of the Pharmaceutical Society of New Zealand. All views of our guests in these episodes are their own.